he's married, that doesn't necessarily mean he found a chill girl. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> hey, welcome to the Most Skateboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Temple Tonelli, and I'm joined this week by Patrick Higongo and Jason from Frozen and Carbonite to talk about the lifer, Ryan Sheckler. But first, another lifer, Ted Barrow, just wrapped up first season of This Old Ledge. So we got this rival podcaster on the line for a debrief. Ted, welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, we've been loving the series. Um, can you tell <clears throat> us like how it came about? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's nice to see everyone or meet some of you for the first time. The series came about through my friendship that I have with someone at Thrasher. And I have been, I've been living on the West Coast for a few years and doing a lot of, like being in San Francisco, you're surrounded by skate history especially if you grew up skating in the 90s you would just like turn a corner and you can rifle off like you know 10 different videos and or tricks that have been done at each spot and i just have started taking that a little more seriously lately and my friend tony at the mag was like i think after one dinner where i kind of pedantically annoyed him with everything that aaron Meza had filmed in the ftc FTC video around the corner on California Street. He was just like, dude, like, I got this idea. Like, what do you think about this old ledge? Like, it's you talking about old plazas and talking about the history. And a lot of people don't know when these things were built and or why they got built. And this, there could be some some interest here. So that's how that came about. You know, it was a lifetime of skate nerdery mixed with the, I guess, the research skills that I gained in grad school and uh, a kind of neurodiverse attention to arcana that comes from watching skate videos <laughs> so he pitched it to you it wasn't your idea yeah, that you brought to the yeah 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 i mean i think it was very thoughtful and, and generous of of him to sort of say i think you'd be good for this we should give this a try you know but i i also had been like posting a lot of like sort of deep dives into the history of embarcadero and different ledges and like spots and buildings where ledges could be found in San Francisco and elsewhere for a while on my Instagram. And and I think it was just a, a consonant series of events that led to this. So Ted, this is Patrick. Uh, Professor yeah, so. Barrow, actually, you <laughs> just received your PhD. And uh, at yeah. least once I'd like to acknowledge you by your formal title. Thanks again for joining <laughs> us on the show. A question that uh, I've been thinking about as I've been enjoying this old ledge with my wife, who is an urban planner, mm. is... Are there any people in major American cities or in San Francisco, for example, who think about this at the administrative or the municipal level? Are there folks who are as mindful or as thoughtful about skaters or skaters who are working in planning departments, who are working in places who are thinking about the history of their cities through the same lens that you are developing with this old ledge? Um, I have been in the position, especially recently, uh, of having meetings with people at the city in the mayor's office and, and planning and parks and rec about incorporating sk skateboarding into different spaces downtown and sort of thinking about skateboarding as this like new way of like opening up and mobilizing these spaces. And I can't say that anyone in San Francisco that I've met on that level or in the, in those offices feels the same way that most skateboarders do about these spaces. You know, they don't really see the sort of layered uh, dialectical histories and exchanges that can happen in these spaces. They often sort of are like, well, how do we make this terrible thing better? And what can we do? 
<laughs> and my attitude is like, well, this terrible thing that you guys think is terrible isn't that terrible anyway. And uh, the way that you make it better is just by being more inclusive and allowing these things to happen. I mean, all of the histories that I told in the last few episodes on on this old ledger are, are things are these amazing things that happened in spite of the city doing everything it possibly could to forbid and outlaw and persecute the people that were, were doing these amazing things, you know? And it's like hard for people who work for the city to wrap their heads around the fact that at one point, like 25 years ago, San Francisco was the fucking epicenter of skateboarding, was the epicenter of like street culture, of like hip hop, like whatever, like this was the place and it, and like, I don't know, over the last like three decades, like the city has done everything it can to kind of like deaden that and and outlaw that and destroy the places where these things happen and make it impossible for the people who led the way in those in those cultures to survive in this city. And so I don't know. There are there on the other hand, there are definitely like people there. I a lot of the research I do and a lot of sit uh, a lot of the information I get from these from uh, for these episodes are from like-minded architectural historians and preservationists. Shout out my friend Hannah Simonson at Dokomomo. She's been absolutely like a godsend for helping me research these things. So there is definitely like not at the, I wouldn't say on the municipal level, but like in the cultural level, there are definitely people who are really, really interested in the layered histories that a city like San Francisco or any other city has to offer. But I would not say like, no, I don't, the architects, urban plant, you know, planners, landscape architects, people from Parks and Rec, like they're sympathetic, but they they don't get it. <laughs> Ted, Jason here. Um, yeah, what's up, man? Show. Yeah, of course. So um, along those lines, is Waller Street, like um, for listeners, it's that place in SF where uh, I think they took the black marble benches from Market Street. Is that right? And kind of put yeah. them like in, in yeah, a line yeah. with, a, with a bunch of other junk. Is that yeah. an attempt by uh, municipal people to kind of contain skating? Yeah, I mean it's a, I is I don't know the whole history of Waller. I should, but um, it's a that's been going on for you know almost fifteen years, and those benches got ripped out of Market Street. I think sometime around the turn of the the millennium, in like two thousand two thousand one, around then, and they were like in different parts. Like they're basically like some of them are stored off site, like outside of the city, and they've. Yeah, that's an an attempt certainly to accommodate skateboarders, but probably also, as you said, like to isolate and contain skateboarding. But, you know, I mean, it's like San Francisco offers so much for skateboarders that doesn't have to do with a few ledges in a row and some smooth flat ground and some quarter pipes. Like it's a I think it's just, you know, it's a very nice gesture. It's in a beautiful part of the city. It's right at the foot of Golden Gate Park, as as you know, if you visited there. But yeah, I think that's an attempt to accommodate and contain certain skaters and there are a couple parks too of course you know but yeah right and yeah. um another question one aspect of the series that i enjoyed was kind of a peek into old not 90s but like old old sf like yeah. allen ginsburg type shit like for example in market there used to be like a bunch of flop houses or whatever is that yeah. was that a goal of yours for the outset like to t- kind of like fold in that uh, socioeconomic angle yeah i mean it's i from my perspective that's the socioeconomic angle is inevitable especially when you're talking about a place right. that's been like i mean it's so hard to these days to kind of convey that 
the waterfront in San Francisco, the Embarcadero, like Fisherman's Wharf and all these piers, that was where industry happened. That was where like people, that was where longshoremen struck, you know, and the National Guard had to get called in. And like, you know, like San Francisco is one of the biggest shipping cities in the world. And so like when the longshoremen's human would strike, that would shut down, that would create a global economic crisis. So to me, that that history of like why they decided to build a corridor of office towers and, and luxury apartment buildings and, and a, you know, corporate headquarters for Alcoa and a plaza, like that's super important why they put it there. And it, they put it there in part because this had been like a, a site of like labor unrest and like insurrection for you know almost a century you know before before the 1960s so to me that 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 prehistory is very very important in informing how that these spaces were planned and they were planned pretty shoddily and executed pretty haphazardly and that's part of the reason why as urban spaces that attracted like commerce they sort of failed but that's also the reason why they attracted like amongst other people skateboarders you know, it's like right. people skate where they can skate. They're not going to fight tooth and nail to skate like a plaza that they keep getting kicked out at. But there was like this kind of nice period where for Embarcadero, for for example, like you could skate there in the 80s. You could have a keg party there. You could party there and you could have like, you know, <laughs> like all those sort of like like whatever wild stories about how crazy Embarcadero was. You could do that in the middle of a city because the city didn't care about that space. And so, Ted, something I find particularly frustrating as I continue to learn more and more about urban planning and engagement with the public, you know, as a casual onlooker, is that, you know, people have a lot of contempt for skateboarders uh, or anybody who is outside of the norm. And I I know that that sounds kind of cliche, but I, I think something that I still have trouble with is hearing or reading the way that people talk about skateboarders that uh, some people in the public just view us as a menace. And my personal opinion is that the suburbs have kind of turned America's b- public brain into mush because there's this unreasonable expectation of quiet and that your life and your path is not necessarily going to be disturbed. And skateboarders, we're loud, we're messy, we're all over the place. I think we've certainly improved our public image and are maybe more tolerable citizens. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we're nice all the time. But yeah. I don't know. Is there a way to bring that temperature down? I mean, especially, you know, you know, we're all we're all OGs. We're all 40 plus. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to think that people would take us a little bit more seriously when we pull up to town hall meetings, to planning discussions and things like that. But it, it's it's really difficult to especially I imagine for younger people who are thinking about getting involved in their city, in their city council, talking about skate spots or a skate park or whatever. It can be really intimidating when, you know, there's somebody there who basically hates your guts and they've never met you. Yeah, I do think that because skateboarders, when we can unify or when we can like kind of form a collective group, it's a very impressive. And that's probably how any skate parks have gotten built over the last like three decades, let's say. And uh, I think the general perception of skateboarding and skateboarders is changing. I mean, the fact that I I'm in on these meetings with the city and planning and parks for incorporating skate spaces into San Francisco is testament to that. But I still think city, you know, like how like Ocean Howell, like maybe 
10 years ago, the architectural historian, former pro skater, and like the fucking, along with Ian Borden, like the godfather of like skate academia. You know, he, he, he at one point like said that like skateboarders are the shock troops of gentrification in, in major cities. You know, they're the, they're the broom that sweeps away the undesirable elements to a, a part of town where, you know, like that, that could be opened up to commerce, but no one wants to invest in like in a five to 10 year plan, skateboarding is the first wave. And I think that he's ocean said that probably like 10 or 15 years ago. And I think cities are now just getting hip to that idea, but they don't, they're not critical of it. <laughs> they're just like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Like let's put skateboarding here. And then like, in the case of San Francisco, like really desperate communities and people who have nowhere else to go, they will have to go somewhere else because there'll be skateboarders here. And the skateboarders can like go along with the people that are playing pickleball and cornhole. And, you know, we can put workout equipment next to the skate skate plaza. And like, this will change this whole area and it'll be great. Whereas like, I think that the reason why skateboarding is so undesirable and maybe like makes people feel uncomfortable is because it actually involves like the destruction of private property, albeit slowly, and maybe the misuse and abuse of street furniture that people don't even want to spend enough time thinking about like what it's for. Um, the same people who, who drive out or drive home to the suburbs all the time, why do they give a shit? Yeah, because they when they go to the city, they want a shopping mall, you know? like The like, mall is dead! I know, but like, but you know, but cities, I I, I, I sort of believe, I have, I have this weird theory about like urbanism in the late 20th century. And it's like, you know, you say urban in the 90s, what do you mean? Like urban means like not white. You know, urban means inner city. It means Harlem. You say urban now, and it means like urbane, like hipsters, like metro, metrosexual, like whatever you want to say. You know, <laughs> antiquated terms. But you know what I'm saying? Like urban now means sexy and cool, but urban 20 years ago meant like scary and city. And so I, I still think that a lot of suburban people think about cities as places to spend money or to see some sort of spectacle, but not to like lead daily lives where in all of their all of the needs that you would have would be met in a city like i see that in san francisco san francisco is surrounded by very affluent suburbs and very poor suburbs but like both the very wealthy and the very poor come to san francisco for a specific thing but it's not to live and it's not to sort of like find a way to fit into like the way the rhythm of the city they just go there for you know to buy some shit or to see some shit <laughs> And so I, I, I think that skateboarding, like people don't like skateboarding because like when they're in the city, if, if we're imagining that, because uh, it upsets those expectations, like skateboarding in a city is showing that you can like do something kind of amazing and creative and a little bit destructive and disruptive, but like use the city in a different way than than most people sort of expect uh, it to be used for. Yeah, along those lines, like Patrick, I'm sure you've seen all those videos. I think maybe it was in some of the Johnny Wilson videos where like civilians will try to get people to stop skating like a particular building or whatever, like totally unaffiliated with it. And I think that's because of what Ted just mentioned. Like it makes them nervous that people are destroying property and using the city in, you know, kind of like a loud kind of creative way. Yeah. I mean, I look since we're all like over 40, like. I will admit that I now start to feel uncomfortable when I see people like speeding by on scooters, you know, like and like other forms of like transportation in play that I don't totally understand. 
like I'm I feel like those old people that used to yell at me for skateboarding because I'm just like, wait, the sidewalk's not for this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I'm no different in a weird way, but I just sort of I'm too steeped in skateboarding to to ever be critical of of why skateboarders are in a city, you know. But like I I still feel that way about self-driving cars and people on motorized scooters and like whatever, you know, like to me that doesn't fit with my idea of a city. Yeah, well, I think the motorized scooter thing is that because so many people who rent motorized scooters or, or bicycles, um, they don't have the eyes. You know, something that yeah. you develop as a skateboarder is that uh, you are 100 percent. You have to be in the zone when you're skating down the sidewalk or skating in the street, especially in a and goodness. You could be in a small suburb or in a major city. It doesn't matter where. And something yeah, that is point. absolutely maddening about people who ride their bike on the sidewalk is and especially when they're wearing headphones. Don't get me started. Uh, it, it's it's ridiculous. It, it, it's I think that's far more dangerous than skating. Although I love it when I see people on four wheelers and scooters and motorcycles doing the twelve o'clock boy shit because that's it. it that's oh, still yeah. the best. I, that, no doubt. That, that's I, completely, actually... I completely agree. But and I but I but part of that is like I've never seen anyone collide with anyone on a scooter. I've never seen like any of the things that annoy me about being on a sidewalk that aren't skateboarding. I've never seen those accidents happen, but I imagine how terrible those accidents would be if they happened. And I think that's how people like traditionally approach skateboarders. They're just like, well, I've never seen a collision, but that would suck if it did. And to which every skateboarder would say, yeah, of course that would suck. That's why I'm not colliding with you. You know, but it does happen, you know, like, yeah, I've I've definitely heard stories of people like shooting their board out when they miss a trick and it like clips some old lady in the ankle, you know? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. It definitely happens. I've, I've, I've been guilty of that, too. (laughs) Yeah. So, so some of that fear is, uh, warranted, I guess, but I think like when you're you're living in a city or you're in a city, you just need to be aware at all times, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, like that's kind of all part of the fun, you know, like your board shoots out, hits a car, car alarm goes, goes off, you know, kind of part of the whole thing. I, I, I mean, it, you know, totally like, uh, but I can get how that's chaotic and disruptive to other people. Right. <laughs> Charge it to the game. I mean, you know, I think another, another root of that discomfort is a hatred of young people. Let's keep it a yeah. hundred. There's a lot of people, even in their thirties who hate skateboarders. And the interesting thing about skateboarding is, I, I think about this a lot, is that it is the only recreational activity I have where I am routinely spending time with, friends with, hang out with people from all sorts of different class backgrounds. And yeah. that it, for the most part, it's usually pretty friendly and it is definitely coming from a place of respect and something I think is really important that I've really noticed more as I've grown older is that when you're a skater, you know, you're not going to immediately dismiss some young kid, you know, they could be 12, 16, 20, 22, you know, it could be even somebody who's could be your own child. Whereas I think that there are some and this is, you know, broad generalization here, but I feel like there's a lot of people my age, you know, I'm 41, who they can't stand teenagers and they hate, you know, people in their early 20s. I'm just like, you weren't a kid once too, doing dumb shit. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I feel that way about anyone who doesn't skate. Like skateboarding is the one thing that doesn't keep my like that I can like look with a little bit more compassion and understanding and like having a bond uh, with someone who, you know, like is young, much younger than me. You know, that's so natural and so kind of cool about skateboarding. 
but yeah, the moment that young person steps off a skateboard and is just a young person, I was like, yeah, there's nothing that would connect either of us. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's partly that, and I, I get it, but like old people fearing young people is a tale as old as time itself. <laughs> and it's about time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, going, kind of going back to uh, space and how we use it, like, I've always kind of wondered, like, is skateboarding unique in the way that we repurpose space and kind of like claim open space? Like, I, I feel, or maybe it should, I should just say like action yeah. sports, you know, because like BMXers are kind of using the same space that we do. But like, I mean, are we special or yeah, not? I think so. I mean, I, the only ways that I can think about that might parallel in some ways are like breakdancing or parkour graffiti but even all of those things seem kind of antiquated or like they're they're like developmental stages compared to the complexity with how we like repurpose space and i think part of that has to do with just like i mean being an art historian i'm going to always be oriented towards like symbols and and uh performance and and visual stuff so i i think it's like it's not just that we the reason why we redeem certain spaces worthy of our skateboarding and repurposing them is because of how they look feel and sometimes smell you know like and so i think that there's this like this awareness of the aesthetics of a space that um skateboarders like recognize and factors into our like using it for skateboarding that in a way like from my perspective like highlights why these spaces are interesting in the first place you know like that's Partly what I'm doing with and I'm getting I'm getting really nice responses from like non skateboarders who are interested in like late 20th century Northern California architecture because they're like, you know, people aren't writing about this stuff in this way. And I think that part of what we're doing is we're actually like kind of paying tribute to and critiquing but lovingly using these spaces, say like a skate a ledge or a plaza or something in this way that like i don't think i can't think of any other activities that like like i get it the rock climbers have their roots going up like you know half moon in yosemite or something but and i get that that's also aesthetic but i think that there's something skateboarding sort of developed alongside a very rapidly expanding visual culture of like video and filming and stuff like that and it sort of it is well suited to be documented and those documents of it like make those spaces even more exciting. Whereas I think graffiti writers think about like visibility and like the lore of the space, like a palimpsest, but they're not really thinking about like over and over the same spot over and over and how it can be redefined. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Do you all yeah, agree? The, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. The flip side of that is I was rewatching the, the Bay Blocks episode and there's a quote from uh Sadowitz. I believe he was the architect <laughs> or the architect of a, uh, the yeah. big blocks and he, and yeah. he said can't, can't quote can't you understand you're ruining something that belongs to you the people end quote so i mean do you think he was right in a way or wrong or like somewhere in between i mean part of me like listen if um you know like i i think one of the like background like in, influences of of that of the bay blocks ribbon like the those like cubic forms along a strip mm -hmm. was donald judd and i think like even though judds are skatable to skate on a Judd would ruin it. So I'm kind of with him on that. Like, I'm like, yeah, you like, if that strip somehow miraculously made, like for two and a half miles was pristine and nobody touched it, it would be a breathtaking transcendental art experience to someone who is attuned to it. 
but you built this in a city next to a highway <laughs> with yeah. where thousands of people are going to visit and use this thing for for whatever purposes they may see fit and you cannot expect people to treat it like it's some object in a museum or a gallery you know absolutely cherry pick that quote of Sadowitz. I mean, it's pretty easy to find, but he's also later on in, in other interviews gone back and been like, you know, we inadvertently designed this like really excellent skateboarding space. And that's very interesting, you know, like, so I could, I could get why you'd be pissed, but I can also get like, you know. It's nice to learn that he kind of came around to it and embraced, you know, how the public was using the space. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, like maybe some, you know, how like the turtles, like, you know, the reason like you can't like have all these multiple samples on like a hip hop album, like after Three Feet High and Rising or Bismarcky's I Need a Haircut is because these these like 60s artists like sued them. But I'm for like copyright and sampling. But um, I'm sure like some artists were actually I would hope that some of these like musicians would have been like excited that their music was being sampled and used in this new way. And I think it's the same thing with like these like 60s or 70s boomer architects like. I think they would be thrilled. I mean, Barbara Stoffiger Solomon is fucking thrilled that people are skating Pier 7 to this day. That's that's amazing. Yeah, and that's a relief you, to hear. Have you heard <laughs> yeah. from any other architects? Or is there, you know, I think, uh, was it Francis Bacon who designed Love Park? Like he was, or Edmund Bacon. Edmund Bacon. Uh, so fully Edmund. down for skating. Uh, yeah, I mean. And Edmund Bacon was actually the city planner for Philadelphia, and the guy who designed the park and Muni was uh, a guy named Vincent Kling. And Bacon, yeah, Bacon was totally just like, well, just, you got to think about it like this: like in the ni- in the '60s, you have this idea for how how city urban plazas will be, and you're designing these new spaces. And then by the '80s, that mission was seen as a complete failure. So if if kids are finding some new way to use this space. And that somehow adds to your legacy in the like late nineties and early aughts. Like I think you, the smart designer would be in favor of that, you know? Totally. Wait, so, so what was the original vision of like a, a place like love park, for example? Uh, love park. There's a really, I mean, they were just sort of, it kind of comes out of these European avant-garde plans for rebuilding cities after world war one. Like, Le Corbusier had this uh, had this idea called the Plan Voisin, and it was like basically these towers uh, with these elevated platforms and parks, like multi-level, like parking garages, mark like malls, shops, like open air plazas. I mean, if you've ever watched like you know a Clockwork Orange, you can see how how these things ended up or like we're, we're taken in, in the UK, but like, it was this idea that you should modernize cities, that you should incorporate the automobile, you should, you should create new open space by create, by building these very tall high rises, uh, residential high rises. It's the same reason why housing projects were built. And like Bacon had this idea that you could, conti- life could still continue in a place like Philadelphia, like this like colonial city from like, you know, whose like footprint is dates from the 1700s and whose like most of its buildings are from the 18th and 19th century, that if you just modernize one part and incorporated parking and the new highways and the subway system that you could keep people in the city or make it easy for commuters to come there and work and spend money and then leave efficiently. And so Love Park and Muni and, you know, all the like all the spots that I'm basically ever going to be interested in making videos about we're all 
designed basically after World War II and before 1990, <laughs> you know, and it was just this period of like urban redevelopment in the United States that like where the all the people who designed these places were taught by European avant-garde architects and designers and artists that had fled Europe during World War II and their sort of theories about urban design were codified into academic study and that led to the way that these American cities with their great skate spots look. And Ted, you you touched upon something a little earlier about the fact that people have been reaching out to you and saying, this is really interesting. I didn't know this about this particular space or this particular spot. And that there, it seems like there's, you know, we're calling it hidden history, but it is part of, it's part of a city, any of the cities uh, or any city's history. It is something that should be ideally should be documented. I think the last few episodes of the show, I think we've all been feeling a little bit nostalgic. Maybe we all got summer on the brain and we're thinking about being young. You know, we've been thinking a lot about the documentation of skate history and skate culture. And up until very recently, I think the internet has really leveled the playing field and opened up a lane for people such as yourself, but then also Brendan from The Secret Tape. Like there's this whole lane of folks who are thinking critically and with a, through a lens of uh, historical analysis about this thing that we've all been doing since we were teenagers. And it kind of, it saddens me that we didn't start sooner. And it would be amazing, for example, if you say did, um, you know, documentaries are good. I think books are better, but it would be amazing, for example, if you just started an interview, you know, doing, uh, to do more and more interviews with folks who are still around, who had designed these oh. places, because they're getting on in their years. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I Barbara Stoffiger Solomon is like 95, and I want to sit down with her, you know, and break bread and, and just hear what she, she has to say. Um, but I also sort of like, also skateboarding is very, very young culturally, you know? Like the founders, many of them are, and the, the key players, the people who sort of like, you know, skated the first skateboard that had been broken off of a, you know, like a, a box, you know, like a, a scooter. And they took the, the handles off the scooter and they were, those people are still alive. You know, they're, they're in their 70s and they're, they're still with it and cogent. And you can talk to them. And as an art historian, especially as someone who focuses on like late 19th century, early 20th century stuff, like I don't have access to Winslow Homer and John Singer Sargent. <laughs> Henry Osawa Tanner like I you know like I have to like I have to go through several levels of academic and scholarly study to like get close to these people and their art whereas like we can actually you can email Jim Fitzpatrick and Stacy Peralta and Tony Alva or whoever you know like Carabeth Burnside and and like you can connect with these people like what we were talking about earlier and so I, I do think it's very um there's like this weird thing where once we realized that you could historicize skateboarding, like now, like skateboarding has gotten so much more open and interesting, you know, but I, I was one of these people that kind of dug my heels in and was like, we shouldn't be academic about skateboarding for most of my life as a skateboarder. I was like, what matters is like what we experience, what we share in the immediately in this. I'm not interested in this back in the day shit, but the older you get, <laughs> you start to get very interested in 1996. So that that's what changed, just kind of like a nostalgia or maybe just having some years in the game and uh, more to look was, back at? There were a couple of things. Like for me personally, I think that I went through graduate school and most of my colleagues were very passionate about the things that they were researching. 
but most of them didn't have an authentic connection to that scene. You know, even people who were like researching like 80s alternative music venues in the East Village and performance art and stuff like that, like they only tangentially could reach the people that um, were the key players in that scene. And I never really studied skateboarding or anything in skateboarding in my in my graduate work. But I was just like, I ha now have all these like research skills and now I'm super fucking interested in like talking about skateboarding. So and all these people are still here so I can do this now, you know. So I, I do think. But yeah, over the last few years, like I think with like feedback, I started to like do get on some old head shit and like write like stories about growing up in the 80s and Lance Mountain and Neil Blender and stuff like that. And I realized that people were kind of interested in that. And I realized that there are all these other nostalgic dudes <laughs> frozen in carbonite and things like that, <laughs> like where where like, you know, like there's there's a there's a market for this. And it's it's not an inauthentic market. It's a market because we actually care. And we're at the age where we can we can sort of historicize these things. And I think that when I'm skating, I don't think about like the videos that I saw in 1994 I'm thinking about skateboarding right then, but I, but when I'm not skating, I often find myself just sort of happily thinking about how wonderful and rich this world that formed me was since skateboarding is such a huge part of that. So Ted, uh, something you also touched upon, you were talking about uh, Le Corbusier and mm -hmm. um, a lot of the developments, a lot of the architectural experiments that really spawned out of Europe uh, after the first and second world war. And I think something that's been really interesting to, to reflect upon is what went wrong, especially with regards to something like, say, materials, like concrete. I believe that there was some issue with concrete curing in mm -hmm. the UK and that a lot of the buildings that a lot of the uh, council houses, council towers that were built, they weren't designed with, say, for example, um, the dampness or the cold in mind. And so these places just end up becoming miserable because not only were they gray and the sky is gray all the time, but also because of um, the quality, you know, the quality issues of the building. But on the flip side of that, of those those accidents, you know, there's now a whole subculture on the internet of people posting pictures of brutalist as well yeah. as modernist buildings. And you just, as a skateboarder, you know, like you show that to, you know, casual punter out there. They'd be like, look at this ugly building. As, as a skater, you're like, dog, there's like seven spots in that whole building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, I mean, like... Uh... I'm a novice at architecture, but isn't South Bank kind of brutalist with the concrete and everything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. there you go. All right, cool. Brutalism from from the culture and country and place and era where brutalism was not only named, but really like, although brutalism itself comes from like, what's the word in French, the term in French, beton brutal, like rough concrete. It was named by an architectural historian named Rainer Banham, and he was talking about a group of designers or a couple of designers named the Smithsons who after World War One, World War Two, they were just like unadorned. Like if a pipe's a pipe, let's show it be a pipe. If concrete is concrete, let's not like put stucco on it. Let's like. Yeah. So to answer your question, one thing that happened was modernism as a movement, as a design aesthetic was about top down theoretical solutions for big problems, right? If you had a theory, that theory should work. If people, if like people want clean apartments, let's stack 20 clean apartments, one after the other on top of them in these big towers and people will be happy, right? Well, no. <laughs> so what ends up happening is like modernism kind of fails as a, as a, uh, as a solution 
also speaking of like council estates and things like that, um, neoliberalism, neoliberalism kind of fucked modernism because once like there wasn't federal and state funding for housing projects and public works and infrastructure, these things started to fail and they were like, they were not like kept up. And so in a weird way, but like my theory, my thing is like, yeah, like Embarcadero was a kind of dead plaza, but the designers wanted people to play there. They wanted incidents and random performances and all these things like, no, people weren't dancing and performing theater and juggling and fucking fire breathing like Burning Man and Barcadero. But, you know, Mike York was doing frontside crooked grinds there. And and Josh Kalis and Rob Welsh and Eric Bupecki like went ac across the country to skate there and enrich the culture. And so I sort of think in a weird way, like the lofty aims of of modernism, the utopian goals that came out of like the hothouse of ideas out of the Bauhaus in Europe. No, those didn't work. But like skateboarding kind of saved these spaces. I'd also add one thing to that, Ted. Um, another, actually, we're about to hit the 50th anniversary of this particular global event, which I think accelerated the rise of neoliberalism, or more specifically, let's call it what it is, privatization, um, yeah. was the 73 Arab-Israeli war and the subsequent mm -hmm. oil crisis. Because, I mean, that took a sledgehammer to what uh, in German they called the, the 30 glorious years, you know, the 30 years after the Second World War, in which the yeah. economies of France, uh, West Germany, the UK, the United States, it was booming, booming, booming. And so much of uh, so much of that growth and that success was hinged upon what access to cheap oil. And right. since then, you know, we've been living in, you know, we've been living in the vapor trails of that. I think uh, I think then another question. Also, P.S. Rainer Benham is the man. Rainer yeah. Benham uh, moved to L.A. and learned how to drive because he said, you know, he had colleagues. I think he was at Cambridge who studied mm -hmm. Dante. So they all learned Italian so they could read Dante in its authentic text. So he said, I moved to Los Angeles. And if I wanted to know the city, I want to I want to learn how to drive a car so I can truly experience it. And there's a great documentary called Rainer Banham Loves L.A. Uh, it was yeah. one of the first things I watched when I moved out here. And, you know, speak, and speaking of Rainer Banham. Yeah. So what else? The uh, Four Ecologies of Los Angeles or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but speaking of Rainer Banham, you know, something that skateboarders share in common with with planners and historians such as yourself is we're enthusiastic and we know about cities. It's actually kind of weird. Have you ever been, you know, say on a trip or doing something non-skate related and you're like, I have to go see this spot. I have to go see this place. It's the straight, it, it's a strange and beautiful thing. Like oh, yeah. some people, I mean, some people visit sports stadiums. Like we like to go look at, you know, a, a marble ledge or something like that on yeah. vacation. Absolutely. You follow your nose. It's it's almost this weird thing like where you can kind of sense that a spot will be there, you know, like you, you go to a city and you're not even looking for it. And then you're like, wait a second, I'm in blankety blank, like I'm in Lausanne. I know this thing is right here. I'm going to I'm and I think I can picture where it is and you find it, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I, I feel that again, not to like it's not all about Embarcadero, but like. Most of my friends, even if they don't skate anymore, will come to San Francisco and want to see Embarcadero. You know, it's the same reason why people made spiritual pilgrimages in the medieval period. You know, you know like it was is because like you something significant happened that changed your life. And you even if you're just glimpsing the place that matters. So question for everybody, uh, Jason and Templeton as well. 
what is, you know, your Vatican, your Lourdes, your Mecca, the place that you went there, and you're just like, oh my goodness, I, I finally got to see it. Maybe you didn't even skate it, but you got to go visit it. So for all of you, like, what what was that place? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've been there many times, but um, I mean, as the, as the DMV correspondent here, I got to say a Pulaski. Yeah, I agree. You know, hands down, that place is still uh, kicking ass. Yep. And it's still, it's still, every time, like, I go there and I park, possible to find parking, like, walk up there, it's like, you know, so that, still that same feeling. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that place rules. I think for me, it was the Brooklyn Banks. I remember it was in college that I went and skated it, and I stayed with a friend in New Jersey. We took whatever, the path train into the city, took the subway to whatever stop, and then, like, my first kind of experience with New York City as an adult was, like, popping up there and just like you know it was like a bigger city like the buildings were way bigger than anything i'd ever experienced before and just like the noise of the city and everything it was just like a an immersion experience with new york and then it was a few blocks away and we we're at the world famous brooklyn banks and that was that was kind of like the first big bucket list spot for me and you, you know, hear right like when you get when you get out of the train you did you like hear the boards down the block that's what it was like for me the first time, I think. That was I don't cool. remember. I mean, I, I think I was making a lot of, like, you know, me and my crew were, were like, skating yeah. to the spot. And, like, we had a, a guide, so we knew where we were going and everything. But just, like, you know, you'd see all the buildings. And then, like, as you get closer, things start to feel familiar, you know? Like, like yeah. you see the arches, and you're like, oh, like, yeah, we're getting close. And, like, you see the bricks, and, you know, it's just kind of, like, building up. And you're like, I'm, I'm in the place. Very exciting. Did you have one, Ted? Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you, Jason. Pulaski, you know, like at first it was Embarcadero, but I've been there so many times, like, but like it kind of, I mean, it still has that feeling, but I love DC. DC is a a beautiful, sculptural, muscular city, so beautifully planned. And um, I'll always, and because Pulaski is kind of intact, unlike any other like skate mecha plaza, you can go there and you can skate the same thing that Pep Martinez and Andy Stone and, you know, Chris Hall skated. And to me, that's just amazing. Like same surfaces. I was there last uh, June. I was working with uh, Betsy. Shout out Betsy Gordon at the Smithsonian. Yep. And um, I was there one afternoon, like whatever, like all the locals are like by the stairs and by the by the by the granite ledge. And uh, I'm, you know, like it's there. People are skating. It's great. Everyone's cool. On the other end of the plaza is like some roller hockey people, probably like government workers, whatever. And then the far end by the fountain, there's like probably 50 couples of like elderly people dressed to party, line dancing to soul music with a live DJ. (laughs) Hell yeah. And it's like late afternoon, the sun's streaking across the plaza, like turning those government buildings like pink. And I was just like, this is so beautiful. Like here we have like, you know, four decades of skate skate history in one spot on one end. And then you have people using this thing for their own purposes and nobody's in each other's way. And everyone's invested in having a good time and letting letting everyone else have a good time. I was just like, this is the most I'll take that to the grave. Like this is the most like perfect use of urban i've never seen shit like this in europe this is amazing i'm i know that pulaski wasn't always like that obviously i know dc isn't always like that but like just that little moment i was just like this is it you know this place is unchanged it's 
is about DC. It is DC. It's built from the very stones that line and face the other buildings, but it's this amazingly unique space. And, uh, and I don't know if there's anything else like that. I think for me, it was Pier 7 in yeah. 1998. It was a family trip. We're going to go see my auntie in Sacramento. And I convinced my parents. Actually, no, uh, we were meeting my dad uh, for a big convention somewhere else. Anyway, so my brothers and I flew out with my mom and I begged and begged and pleaded. I was like, I really want to go see Embarcadero. Yeah. And I want to see what was then known as the, the new spot, Pier 7. Yeah. And I had my board. And my, my brother took pictures of me. Or one of my younger brothers took pictures of me, and then we crossed street, we walked, we went down to Pier 7, and I got to skate, and Carl Watson was there. Sick. And I did a slappy crook on uh, one of the ledges there. And he said, like, that was nice, man. I've never forgotten about that. He is... Yeah, he's the best. He's the best, but, like, that, like, I was just, like, I'm just, like, some kid, you know, from out of town, skating here. And I knew it was, like, a territorial place, and I, you know, tried to, you know, I got a little manual in there as well, it was just the coolest thing. And I said, okay, like, this is amazing. And I've continued to see amazing spots all over. But, like, that one was really special because 97, 98, Pier 7 was popping. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Okay, so, like, do y'all think that um, – because I think all we all sort of describe spots that were maybe had something to do with, like, the first time you're in a city or, like, you're a bit younger 20 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. Is it possible to feel that way about skate spots now? New spots? Yeah. Or just like even old spots, you know? Hell yeah. I, okay, good. I'm glad. I'm yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, I think if I went to say like Lyon and went to Hotel de Ville, I, I think yeah. it would be the same vibe, you know? Yeah. Jason, you would have cried. It was, they've, you know, they've <laughs> repaved everything. The pyramid is nice and smooth. The ledges are rounded off like shit, but um, one of them has a metal arching on end. It's beautiful. It was, and it was, it's one of those places where it's actually way, way bigger in real life. And some of those places have, because of the design of the space, they, they make you take pause. Like Macba is like that. You know, I mean, that place is an absolute zoo, but, you know, just to, to drink it all in, like you, you're not just looking, spaces like that. I think, you know, when you're older and you know more and you know more about the world, you know, when I look at Macba, you know, first time I went was on my honeymoon. I couldn't believe that this place was not only a legendary skate spot over the last 20 years, but also this is in Barcelona. It is the, the, the anarchist heart of, of, of Catalonia and that the space, that public space, like something that was really unique about Spain was that after Franco died, you know, the dictatorship ended and they were in the process of transitioning to democracy and writing a new constitution. One of the first things that started happening was young people went out and hung out in plazas. And they yeah. would drink and they would smoke and they would chill and dance and listen to music because, you know, when you are living in a in a dictatorship or a very repressive society, you know, you're constantly under surveillance. And the idea of just liberated fun, you know, it just doesn't really exist in the same way. So that's something that when you go as an you know older person, more learned person than I was when I was 16 or 17, to go to places like that and to be able to view it not just as a skate spot that looked amazing in photos and videos, but to also see it within the context of space, I think that yeah. to me makes it feel, it makes me feel like it, it creates more reverence. I feel like very like super humbled to see something like that and to be able to appreciate it as more than just some concrete or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's, I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, Patrick, because, you know, China, I'm saying blanketing term China, but like China spots 
are designed like Barcelona. And there was a thing for a while where teams were going out to China to like skate these newly built cities or these new newly built parts of older cities because they had Barcelona like spots. But because it's a slightly different culture and different context, like the um, to sound like a child, the vibe wasn't there, you know, like like there wasn't a it, there wasn't this sort of like like, you know, you can have Barcelona level ledges anywhere in the world, but you're not going to have that history that you just talked about of like people understanding that hanging out in a plaza an unstructured outdoor activity in a city is vital to the city. You know, I hope I didn't like shit on China. You know, what I'm saying, though, like, like, no, there, there was a moment where like team all the team team managers were like, yo, let's send our t- team to China. And then the team would go to China and they'd stack, but they'd be so bored and it'd be demoralizing because there's nothing else to do because like no one speaks Chinese, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there aren't any other skaters and, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, now there's now there's a skate culture, but the catch yes. is because of COVID, all of a sudden that China footage, because of three years and counting of no China trips, that yeah. footage is taking on uh, a, a new light. It's almost like an overhyped album that everybody just sells secondhand. You know, they sell it to a, the used record store and then However many years later, someone's going to pick it up and say, hey, this was actually really cool. And I'm yeah. like, I've, I've revisited some of those, like like a bunch of the girl chocolate stuff from then. A lot of China footage. I'm like, wow, there's, there's something magical about thinking, oh, hey, this is this is not going to happen again for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so Patrick, what, what you're so, so what you're saying is China footage is the Chinese democracy of skate footage. exactly exactly also by the way that album is not bad and chinese democracy is the chinese democracy of democracy in china (laughs) yeah holy shit uh all right let's let's uh wrap this up we got to give shekler a little a little uh, i'm eating up your guys's time no no this this has been great and i think that it'll be uh just perfect on the rest of uh tonight's topics but i wanted to ask so this is the first um, season or bundle you called it. Uh, what's next? Yeah, I can say that I have gone to another city and filmed another bundle. I definitely have plans to do like shorter, like one-off episodes on like one spot or one ledge or things like that. You know, where it's like you don't have this like 30-year archive of photos and video, but like there's something cool about like a ledge or a bench or something like in some place. Uh, so I, I like the idea of like doing like three or four or four or five in a different city. And we do plan to go to different cities, but I also like the idea of um, kind of keeping it open. Like if I want to bring in Ocean Howell or Carl Watson, you know, to talk about a spot with me or, you know, like Kevin Bill, <laughs> you know, like I yeah. would love that. Like it's, I don't, I'm down to do the research and like be the presenter guy, but I also obviously like every every story is in a conversation and I the more people I can bring into this the the better the project will be. Sick. Looking forward to it. Yes sir. I, f- I feel like there's a lot of cities with a lot of potential, you know, like obviously New York is a great one, London, Chicago I feel like has a lot of oh, yeah. really sick skate spots that are also like architecturally significant. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, absolutely. One one of the things I'm thinking about is just like speaking of Barcelona, like Mies van der Rohe was this German architect uh, who designed the 1929 Barcelona Pavilion. And as far as I'm concerned, and I could be wrong about this, but 
I think that's the first like marble slab ledge ever designed. You know, mm-hmm. it was in tra- it was in travertine. Like no one skates it, but like I think not only did Mies like design other plazas like Toronto Dominion Center in Toronto and Federal Plaza in Chicago or whatever it's called, Seagram Building in New York, but he also like was so influential that like the imitators of Mies designed ledges to look like a Miesian bench. And so, so like, just if you just trace like the Barcelona Pavilion when it was built in 1929, when it was rebuilt in that same period that post Franco, like they're like designing all these plazas in Barcelona in the late 20th century, and then where those ledges end up like all around the world, you have like the history of like that type of ledge and these skate plazas spreading to like almost every city, you know. And so like that's that's something I kind of want to get into with with this series, you know. The SF ones are in a weird way the most anomalous ones because everything was concrete up to a point and it was so short lived. But like, you know, like Pulaski, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, like where are they looking? You know, like they're looking at these other places. So, yeah. Can't, can't wait for more. Let's do we're we've gone a little long, but let's yeah, give yeah, Sheck, let's give Sheckler his due and kind of give a little lightning round on uh, on that part. Um Kind of seems, yeah. Yeah, uh, hmm. seems, seems like this past week, Ryan Sheckler has kind of taken over, put out a new part <laughs> with an accompanying documentary from Red Bull. Then Thrasher posted on My War detailing all that went into his ender, not his ender ender, but just the ender. Yeah. Patrick is a part, and is Sheckler really worthy of all the attention? I think he is worthy of the attention. I mean, we could probably have a whole conversation about the dangers of being a child star in any profession but professional skateboarding in particular you know he was stepping into the shoes of guys like chris brana guy mariano billy waldman and he far eclipsed any of those three in terms of his output as a as a as a young skater and you know then he did his life of ryan thing on on mtv which was a little bit cringe but who didn't have a reality show back then and I think something I want to point out, uh, I saw a couple of pieces of the documentary and I'll probably watch it this weekend. There's a quote from Salima Misakela where he says something along the lines of uh, people thought he wasn't cool. I was like, I didn't, you know, I, it wasn't a question of thinking about he wasn't cool. I just, I didn't think about him. It's like, okay, this is a young dude who rides for World Industries. All right, fine. You know, and then he was yeah. on, then he's, then he's on plan B. It, it's, it's not like I was not, you know, not out there like spending time being like, oh, he sucks. He's terrible. He's killing the industry. But I'll I'll say this, Orange County is a trap, and here's why. Because I think about him, I think about Jeremy Ray, Ronnie Krager. Take those guys outside of Orange County and put them in other places. You see their footage from other places, they're so cool. I think it's it's a it's that county breeds so much good skateboarding, but it the place is so swaggerless that it rubs off on even the coolest people. Yeah, yeah we're maybe not gonna get a uh, OC this OC. old ledge OC edition. <laughs> Nobody's denying that Ryan Sheckler has a lot of swag. Okay, first of all, I take that. Right. No, I was kidding. Uh, okay, yeah. What do y'all think? Jason, well, I mean, well, well, well. First of all, um, I'm out there. I'm in the trenches, and I'm and I'm here to tell y'all uh, there there are no chill girls. There's no chill girls out there um, <laughs> in, in 2023. Uh, but nah, seriously. Like, well, I mean, why people hate on him? Like he's just kind of like corny. Like when he came out, he was like a like that like a helmet kid. Then he had the TV show, which was corny. Just the whole like jumping down stuff. 
type of vibe. I don't I don't mind the Red Bull hat though, because I'm pretty much everyone that was on Red Bull, including Zarek, uh wears one. So I'm not yeah. that. But I mean, part's pretty good for what it is. Like, yeah, the child star shit is rough. There there was a guy who, who you know it wasn't always easy for him, as we know. Chris Brown. I think Chris Brown was like a bit, like a bit that Rocco did. Yeah, like, I don't think Chris Brown was ever good. Yeah, it was like, but um, but the documentary it was it's like an actual Sheckler documentary would, would be interesting. But I mean, you didn't learn anything about him besides like you know he gets tricks a lot and he's very determined about uh, getting clips and he's very determined about coming back from injuries. So. Yeah. You learned absolutely zero from from the documentary. It's more like a promo piece for for the part. Sorry, yeah, I agree. I agree with you there. It's like um, it's a, it's kind of a weird thing right now, actually, that Barbie came out and people like <laughs> there's this whole phenomenon about Barbie and shit. Like because if you really think about like Mattel and what they're doing, like Mattel switched over to IP. Like what they make now is not toys. They make IP like they they, they're going to make a He-Man movie they're going to make a fucking Barney movie and they're going to design this movie this is not these are not movies for children these are movies for 35 year olds for 35 year olds who grew up with G.I. Joe and He-Man and these bullshit cartoons that had no plot they were just 30 minute long commercials for these toys right and I and I sort of feel like the Ryan Sheckler documentary is a documentary length commercial for this toy or this energy drink or whatever, you know, no, no disrespect to Ryan Sheckler because like, uh, I think it was probably really hard to grow up the way that he did, you know? And I'm so impressed with him as a skateboarder and his spiritual journey, like whatever, that's none of my business, but like that, it, like you can't really, this documentary is just like him, you know, it's just, it's, it's repeating all the tropes of like determination, hard work, injury, trauma, triumph, of like a Danny Way documentary or a Toss Pappas documentary, you know? Yeah, like I think maybe the Toss Pappas documentary. When I was watching Papa. it, I was like, I don't think this is for me. I don't think this is for skaters. I think it's for like civilians yeah. because it's like the first 15 minutes of the 45 minute piece is basically just like telling you how hard skateboarding is and what a video part is and why it's important. And it's like, yeah, we already know that. So we can just skip. I mean, you yeah. can really just skip the whole thing and just watch the part. Uh, but Let's talk about like, cause I'm sure there's a, there are moments when all of us felt that like Ryan Sheckler was like a whack and a shitty representation of skateboarding or like a insignificant representation of what we cared about skateboarding. But like, do you, do we feel different about Sheckler now? I, I don't, an adult, I don't yeah, certainly. think so, yeah. but I think he's got tricks, you know, like, yeah. like the skating is undeniable. He skates with so much fucking power and like he can take drops like nobody else it's not really the kind of thing that's going to get me hyped to go skate but like you can't deny the tricks yeah i think something that's changed for me my estimation of him was thinking about him through the lens of a child star because i think when i was younger it was just ah, he's got nothing for me but i, I didn't hate him you know i again I, I think it's an overstatement to say that people hated him that that's an incredibly strong word but i you know I really got to thinking about him when he, I think he injured both his ankles during that huge no slide for ETN. Like it was, yeah. it ended up being a big, stupid disaster and it probably shouldn't have been done. And I feel really bad for everybody who was involved because like, you're just like, oh shit, did we just focus this dude's career on camera? <laughs> right, yeah. For some yeah, fucking yeah. dumb pay-per-view shit. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like uh, what you call it, that one uh, Muhammad Ali fight where he bit homeboy's ear off. Um, yeah. But you know, back to, to Sheffler, I think the. Tyson, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Tyson, Tyson, excuse me. Muhammad um, Ali would never do that. <laughs> no, he would. <laughs> RIP the Don. But um, decent name to get confused as well, though. Um, but, you know, back to Sheckler, I, I think also um, having seen a, most of the epically laters and certainly talking with friends and family who have struggled through addiction and like, you know, hearing Sheckler's discussion of his journey, you know, it was kind of just like, you know, you, I, it was like, I, you know, I was like, I, I feel for homeboy, you know, and you know, when you are a child star, you never get to be normal. You never get to be a normal kid. And it's incredibly dangerous to a young person's psyche to have all of that attention on them. And, you know, Jason, you you, you hinted at his, his, his infamous catchphrase from Life of Ryan. Uh, I'm just looking for a chill girl. You know, and it's almost just like it, it's like some kind of a mantra for him or something like that. But, you know, it really yeah, is just not, like not just, just for him. It's just a mantra, period. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's a it's a whole vibe, as the youth would yeah. say. Yeah. But, you know, he, 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 you know, looking to settle down with somebody or, you know, just trying to date. Well, at the time he was young, he was probably just trying to date and just post up and watch YouTube or whatever. But it seems like he found whatever it was that he was looking for in sobriety, in marriage. I think he's a new parent. And so I, I'm, I'm going to be rooting for anybody who gets the happy ending that they were looking for. Uh, I, I can't I can't be mad at him because he wasn't on a cool company. Also, the, the man was getting checks. So respect to him for for counting that money. I mean, what what kind of Red Bull checks do y'all think he's getting? Big, five, real big. Yeah, he's he's probably he's probably good. Like he'll never have to worry about money again. Um, yeah, which I think we'd all be stoked to be getting checks the size of ryan sheckler's checks which brings us to the end of our show where we talk about what we're stoked on ted uh do you have anything that you're stoked on this week yeah i'm stoked on ryan sheckler <laughs> uh no honestly i i watched the my war i'm not to like plug thrasher but like i was like this is great <laughs> you know like the craziest thing about that was there have, have you all seen this sorry i know stoked on supposed to be really short but i just want to tell this quick no, thing all good yeah 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 i've seen it um <clears throat> so you know when the bungee chord snaps and mm-hmm. it like okay so the most mind-blowing thing about that is fabrizio santos is holding the bungee cord and he almost dies when it snaps on him oh and, shit that and didn't I, even and click was, to me that that was fabrizio santos like they said fabrizio, fabrizio santos wow yeah. fabrizio santos is, is, still, is right. still out there doing it yeah he's like ryan sheckler's man dude yeah and i, and I was just like <laughs> yeah. and i was just like what an amazing offer yeah world we live in where, where like this is the content and fabrizio's pulling ryan sheckler's bungee like how could you not be stoked on that <laughs> there we go uh jason uh what are you stoked on this week oh venture trucks out of san francisco california uh ted Hell barrow yeah. signature model uh I in stores it. now nice go, go buy that, that shit i'll, I'll uh, venmo you right now <laughs> there, there you go stoked on the Outer Banks, the place, not the television show. Went there for a week, um, a couple of weeks ago. It was really dope. Uh, almost hurt myself real bad skimboarding, but it, it was still dope. Um, Outer Banks is awesome. Def- definitely go. Not to, even if you're like in New York or anywhere on the East Coast, definitely worth going. Talked about reality television stars on the broadcast today. Along those lines, stoked on the new season of Jersey Shore Family Vacation and the return of Samantha Giancola and uh, Ronnie Ortiz Magro. <laughs> So that definitely looking forward to that. And uh, finally, another week, another Brazilian video, or I guess Portuguese, 
little video called Angelina out of Portugal by Daniel Gali has the usual suspects like Adelson Pedro, um, Carlos Iki. By, by the way, Carlos Iki is still a menace out there. And my boy, uh, Lucas Marquez. So definitely stuck on that one. I think you can see it on free, free skate map. They got all the good shit. Uh, Patrick, what are you stuck on this week? Um, stoked on Spitfire wheels, especially those bunt joints. I hope they're still available because I would like to buy them. Uh, been in, really enjoying the Women's World Cup, especially next week's round of 16 matchup. More specifically, England versus Nigeria, France versus Morocco, and the Netherlands versus South Africa. It's the Colonizers Derby, Colonizers Cup. It's going to be sick. Uh, finally, the new favorite spot, uh, which is a piece on quarter snacks done by our friend Farron Golding up in the oh, north yeah. of England. And Coastline. this week's this week's episode is with the Don, Lucian Clark, Victoria Benches. Peep that. It's really, really good. Templeton, what are you stoked on? I am stoked on the emo revival in skate videos. Been hearing a lot of emo <laughs> in skate videos and really enjoying it. So keep it up, guys. That's it for our show this week. Be sure to check out mostlyskateboarding.net for links to the things that we talked about and other show notes. Until next time, you can keep up with us all week online. Patrick, where can the people find you? You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Pikagongo, same with threads. You can also find me on Twitter under the handle at Colonel K Speaks. And you can also find me doing stuff with the Harold Hunter Foundation. Jason, where can the people find you on the internet? On Twitter, uh, or X, or whatever they call it now, uh, at Carbonite1994. On Instagram, at Frozen Carbonite. And writing stuff for quarterstacks.com. Uh, Should have some new stuff up there uh, this quarter. Maybe the end of fourth quarter as well. So check back for that. And Ted, where can the people find you? I'm just on Instagram, at Ted Barrow, or on my Patreon, at Break the Birds. But um, yeah, mostly I'm, I'm just laying low. I'm happy to be here. You can find me happy to share this space with you guys. Thanks. You we're, we're, we're also stoked on having you on the show, Ted. Thanks Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Mostly Skateboarding and on Twitter at Mostly Skate. We'll see you guys next week. Later. Bye-bye. Later. <laughs>